0: Dear Christian friends. A lengthy email that you just spent a considerable amount of time writing, crafting, only to have it poof, disappear with the accidental touch of a button. A, a labor-intensive meal that you took a considerable amount of time not only researching and prepping for, uh, but, but but finally Making only to find out that your guest has certain dietary restrictions that won't allow him to enjoy all of that work. The studying, the test-taking, all of the the hard work that you've put in for a a number of semesters, only to find out that those credits won't transfer to a different college or university. What What do these all have in common? It's work wasted. A lot of effort that you put into something, all for nothing. Work that was in vain, a waste of your time. This morning we have perhaps the the ideal candidate to speak to us about work that is wasted in terms of faith and religion. The Apostle Paul writing to the Romans is, is the ideal candidate. Why? Because if anybody knew and had the pedigree to talk about this, and and knew that his past would have given him all sorts of bragging rights because of all that he had done, because of his own works, well, he's the right guy for the job. Listen to to Paul as he reminds his listeners in his letter to the Philippians of his pedigree, his past achievements, and, and why he had every right, really, humanly speaking, to boast and to brag about all the work that he had done for God. In Philippians chapter 3, he writes, If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, which is to say, the works, the things that he had done, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul could have hung his hat on all of his works if he was hoping to achieve anything before God on the basis of those. And yet, look at what Paul counts all of those works, his pedigree, his past, before God. He continues to say, "...but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ." What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish, garbage, that I may gain Christ. Here is Paul, who had every reason to put confidence in his works, Saying and drawing the ultimate conclusion that as far as his relationship with God, his eternity and his salvation, basically saying to us, works won't work. And he doesn't stop there. He he knows the wisdom in holding up perhaps one of the best examples in the Old Testament, knowing that, that there were Jewish people that were reading his letters, people in, in Rome that were converts or that were new to Christianity, and, and he knows something about the Jewish people. He knows the, the high pedestal that they place somebody like Abraham on. Legendary status, really. But do you know what the the Jewish people thought of Abraham? Do you know why they regarded him so highly? It was because of his works. It was because they thought that, that God had come to Abraham. Notice, remember, if you know your Old Testament history, Abraham lived before the time that God actually had given the Ten Commandments. And so they understood or they believed mistakenly that God had somehow come just with a special revelation to Abraham and given him special laws and Abraham was so good, so obedient, so righteous in keeping those laws that it not only counted for himself but all of his descendants. So when you hear the promise that Paul quotes and we'll hear it again in in Romans when it talks about the promise or we heard it back in Genesis, our first lesson that I will bless all nations through you The Jewish people thought that what God meant there was because of Abraham's righteousness, because of his good life, because of his obedience, it was so good that those blessings would pass down to his descendants as well. So they looked even at Abraham's faith and they celebrated it because they saw it as a good work. Well, now Paul even acknowledges something hypothetically he even says, if that was the case, then yeah, Abraham would have something to boast about. But notice what Paul says then in, in Romans, in, in chapter 4, verse 2, from our second lesson this morning. He says, if in fact Abraham was justified, we can think of that meaning being declared not guilty or another word maybe we're familiar with, acquitted. If he was declared not guilty or if he was acquitted by his works, then he had something to boast about. So Abraham, or, or, or Paul rather, is acknowledging, yeah, if he lived such a good life and, and that was why God acquitted him, then he had every reason to brag. The only problem, Paul continues to point out, is he has no reason to brag before God. Why? Because Paul rightly does what we all do well to follow his example and says, what did God actually say about Abraham? Not what did the Jewish people or anybody else think about God or feel about God, but what did God himself say about Abraham. And this is why Paul concludes that he had nothing to boast about before God. He says, what does the scripture say in verse 3? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. No mention of works. Nothing about his great record of obedience. No special dispensation for Abraham because he was a stand-up guy who, who came by righteousness on his own. God himself plainly says of Abraham, he was righteous only because he believed, and through faith, that righteousness was credited to him. It was a gift. Now, if something is credited, it is a gift. It's it's not an obligation, is it? Think about this this week, hypothetically. Uh, you, You... could use a little extra side money, and so you pick up a a job, you find somebody that is looking for for work, and you agree with this temporary employer uh, on the basis of 50 bucks an hour that you'll work 20 hours for him this week. And so at the end of the week, you put in your 20 hours times 50, I tried to work with nice simple numbers here, And, and at the end of that week, if he comes to you and he says to you, you know... I really appreciate the hard work that you did for me this week, the 20 hours that you put in, and because I am such a stand-up, kind guy, I want to generously give you $1,000. Would that be all right with you? And you'd say, well, okay, but I I earned that. We agreed that that was what you were going to pay me for the work that I did for you this, this week. You'd look at him awkwardly because that was a contract, that was an obligation he has to pay you for the work that you did, right? Not some gift that he's trying to pass it off as. And so it is in the relationship with Abraham and God, that's the point that Paul was making when he goes on to say, Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. So if that would have been the case between Abraham and God... God would have only been giving to Abraham what he owed him for his obedience. And yet, that's not what God said. What was credited to him was credited to him because Abraham believed. It was a gift. It was not an obligation on the part of God, was it? However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. To the one who doesn't rely on his works, but instead trusts God, believes him, takes him at his word, well then you have a different story, don't you? Paul goes on to explain later on in verses 13 to 15, he says, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. So Paul kind of shifts now. He says, what about the descendants of Abraham, which would include us, right? What about the heirs? Are they heirs on the basis of the law, uh, on the basis of Abraham's obedience, or not? Again, suppose, not that this would mean too terribly much for you, so I don't mean to to burst your bubble, but pretend that, that I choose to leave you as the sole heir of my inheritance upon my passing. You get everything that I own. It's all yours. I know, I know. Don't get too excited. And then... When I finally pass away, you find out as my will is being read to you that there's a stipulation that has with it a certain requirement that must be met. You knew already that I told you you were the sole heir, that I was leaving everything to you, and then you find out that you had to do something. You had to meet some sort of requirement. Well, what would you make of that situation? Well, first of all, you're trusting my promise that I was going to give you everything, you kind of look pretty foolish now, wouldn't you? Why? Because apparently my promise didn't mean anything. So if the promise didn't mean anything, then your trusting that promise was worthless as well. And that was the, the point that, that Paul was making as, as well. Here he says, look, if, if God is going to want to give everything as a gift, then it wouldn't stand to reason that somehow now there's a a change in the contract that now you earn it by what you do. And that's how God wants to operate with us. He is a God who, who wants to generously give us, gift us everything. And if under the law, then his promise is worthless and so is our faith in his promise. Furthermore, If we're going to be under the law, Paul spells out exactly the purpose that the law has. He said, because the law brings wrath. And where there's no law, there is no transgression. The law brings wrath. And you know that by nature, don't you? Because where the law is, all it does is expose. All it does is convict. All it does is accuse us. The law does not promise us what is possible, but shows us what is impossible. Perfection before God. Which is why when, when somebody points out our sin, we are quick to, to justify it or rationalize it or blame something else because we know that the law convicts and we know our conscience tells us when I've done something wrong and being called to account, that's not a good feeling. The only thing the law does is bring wrath. So Paul's point is if, if you're going to, to try and get right with God, you're going to try to earn this righteousness by the law, you are... Are swimming upstream. That's an impossible feat, isn't it? Because all the law does is bring wrath. So, what is God's solution? He says, Well, where there is no law, there is no transgression. So, is God just throwing out the law then? Does he just arbitrarily say, Well, I know you can't keep it, you can't be perfect, therefore I will just discard it? No. He did better, he kept it. He kept the law. Perfectly for you, So that if Jesus, by his perfect obedience, kept the law, then through faith in Jesus, God says, the law doesn't count against you anymore. All I see is a Savior who was perfect in your stead, the perfect substitute who kept what you could not. And the law doesn't any longer convict and accuse, but now we are freed, what? By the promise that God gave. Not the law, but the promise. So if the law is, is no longer in the picture, then there's, there's no guilt. We haven't done anything wrong. If, if there were no speed limit posted and there was no law that said how fast you had to drive or how slowly you had to drive, you'd never get a speeding ticket, would you? You only can get a ticket where there is a law, but where there's no law, you can't do anything wrong. Well, God hasn't removed it, but he kept the law. So in God's eyes, through faith in Jesus now, you can do no wrong. All he sees is Christ's perfection in your place. This is is God's will. Not that your works would somehow work before him. Paul wraps it up so beautifully by reminding us, assuring us how we become right with him. He says in verse 16, Therefore, the promise comes by faith. So that, it may be guarant- so that it may be by grace and be- may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, the Jewish people, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, all of the Gentiles, anybody who would believe in God's promises. So, so that is the, the beauty of God's plan, is that he wants to guarantee it for all, and he says the guarantee can only come by grace. And it is ours by grace, not by works. Now, you you finally have to ask yourself at the end of the day, if if you want to believe the the, the lie, if you want to enjoy for a time being deceived into thinking that in certain areas of your life you are better than somebody else and that God must be pleased with that. If you enjoy hanging out uh, amongst the, the Pharisees and the hypocrites. If feeling guilty all the time is your thing, and wondering about your salvation and your eternity, and doubting if you've been good enough, then by all means, stick with works, okay? Because then you're right where you want to be. Because works won't work. But they'll get you all of those things that I just mentioned if you want them. But if you want a rock solid, 100% guarantee that in Christ Jesus, your sins have been fully and completely forgiven, if you want to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that today and tomorrow and the next day, your name is written in the book of life, your sins are fully forgiven, your inheritance is heaven, then do what Abraham did, and Paul, and every believer since then. Believe. Believe, and you will receive those gifts of eternal life. By believing, you will receive what you can never achieve by works. Life in Jesus. Amen.